Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. On this episode of the show, we sit down with a man who is fighting the good fight to help alleviate video game addiction across the world. Cam Adair is an international speaker and entrepreneur who is widely hailed as a leading expert on video game addiction. He is best known as the founder of Game Quitters, a support community for gamers from 95 countries. In 2020, Cam launched the Intenta Gaming Disorder Clinical Training. His work has been published in psychiatry research, reported in government hearings, and been featured in New York Times Magazine, Forbes, BBC, NPR, CNN, and many more. In 2017, he was named one of Canada's leaders in mental health. In this really important conversation that I didn't expect to take the twists and turns that it did, Cam breaks down the trends that are driving much of the world into deep and unhealthy addiction. It's extremely important to understand this phenomenon for a wide range of reasons, but most relevant to our stuff chain and where stuff comes from conversations, video game and other media addictions and other digital addictions are having a serious implication for what people, what quantity of people, aka the labor pool, is available for producing because more people are opting out of the labor force as they're staying home with their newfound digital addictions. And simultaneously, it's changing what value people are consuming because the people who are removing themselves from the labor force are changing their consumption habits. They're consuming way more high-tech GPUs, headphones, microphones, computers, video game consoles, etc. They're consuming way less healthy foods. We've seen the advent of Soylent, a, a product that was primarily designed, from what I remember from the advertisements, to appeal to the gamer who's staying home all day or to the coder who's in front of his computer all day and doesn't necessarily want nor need to go have a fancy dinner or cook a home-cooked hearty meal. Now I'm pontificating a little bit and Cam will share more insights in our conversation, but you get the picture. And then the final thing I want to touch on before we dive into the conversation with Cam is we explore a topic that I have not heard anywhere else that I think is so critical to our stuff chain conversation, particularly to the geopolitical component of our stuff chain conversation. So it turns out that China calls video games, and Cam will get into this in the conversation, that China calls video games spiritual opium. That's the Chinese Communist Party line for how they view video games and its impact on young people and their society. So it's no surprise that at a time when China, literally two months ago, is taking very substantial actions to limit the amount of gaming time that their young people are able to participate in during the week and and on weekends. And we'll link to examples of this in the show notes and Cam gets into it in the conversation. It turns out that Tencent, a Chinese state-owned entity, owns a 40% stake in Epic Games, the company that makes Fortnite. I'm sure many of you listening either play Fortnite yourselves or have kids who play Fortnite. And they own a 100% stake in Riot Games, the company that makes League of Legends, another extraordinarily popular game among teenagers and young adults. So strap in and get ready for an action-packed conversation all about gaming and some unexpected twists and turns about how it relates 
to how we produce, how we consume, and where our stuff comes from. Welcome back to the Where Stuff Comes From podcast. I have a unique conversation for you guys today. Today, I have Cam Adair. Cam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. We're going to touch on all things gaming, media, addiction, and how that impacts where our stuff comes from and some other cultural and geopolitical economic trends that we're seeing as a result of, of a pretty serious crisis, in, in my view, and Cam, I think in, in your view, based on our conversations. So Cam, to get us started, I asked most of my guests, who is Cam Adair in 2021? What are you excited about? What are you working on? Yeah, well, Max, first, thanks so much for having me. I'm truly honored to be here and excited for this conversation. I think it should be fairly interesting. My background very much is in being a gamer myself and growing up and developing a problem with it. And in 2011, I shared my story online about how I had really struggled with gaming. And that led me to hearing from tens of thousands of people who were sharing that they too were struggling with this issue. And this kind of sent me on this path over the last 10 years of of really investigating what this issue is, how it impacts people, and ultimately like, what can we do about it? How can we actually help people with it? And so in 2021, at the moment, you know, I'm a speaker. I talk a lot about this subject. We have a pl- an online platform called GameQuitters.com that has videos and resources and programs for individuals. And then I'm also doing a clinical training for professionals because uh, one of the tragic realities of, of this issue or really any sort of cutting edge issue is that often professionals who are working with young people are not trained and they don't have specialist training to actually understand what they should be looking for and how they can actually help people who are experiencing harms from these different issues. And I really think that that's a huge gap currently in our mental health space that we're really trying to fill. So doing a lot of different things on on research, on speaking, on advocacy, on awareness, and just kind of trying to do whatever I can to move this issue forward. So I'm a, I'm a big believer that we shouldn't just focus on what the problems are and, and doom and gloom. And I, on this podcast, I tried to keep it a tactical and when possible, help people access the resources they need to confront some of the pretty serious and existential um, threats to our human flourishing in the way that we like to flourish right now. So throughout the episode, as we're going through some of the conversation, I'd love it if you could share some of the tactical resources people can access to to help them with, with how they're approaching some of the problems that we're going to be talking about on this episode. Um, so if you're willing to do that, that would be wonderful as we're going through. The first thing I want to do is understand what media addiction is and where that actually comes from. And, and part of the where stuff comes from thesis is most of the, the phenomenon that we're experiencing, they can be related back to objectivist, um, very, very fundamental um, processes and kind of materials phenomenons. Um, so could you maybe tell us a little bit about what is media addiction? What's a, what's addiction generally? Where, and where does that really come from? And then we'll get into kind of the, the more historical context for where, where media addiction comes from. Absolutely. And so in this context, I like to kind of classify this as digital addiction, which would be an umbrella term that we could use to uh, describe whether it's gaming addiction, social media addiction, Gambling addiction often falls under that category. Porn addiction as well. And smartphone addiction 
sometimes what it's called internet addiction as well. And so this is very much an addiction that someone has where they're no longer in control of their media use. They're maybe just continuing to consume more and more and more. They're continuing to engage in gaming to the detriment of normal life responsibilities and activities to their health, their well-being, or they're continuing to spend more and more money and actually experiencing financial harm from the way they engage in these activities. And I think really our society has fundamentally changed as tech use has continued to uh, become more and more central to our lives. And there are some individuals who are more vulnerable to spending more and more of their time online engaged in these media forms. So my background, I have a, a bachelor's degree in material science and a master's degree in manufacturing engineering. And I am in recent months become fascinated with the concept of materialism. You know, I mean, from my perspective, everything's about materials. What is the material makeup of the world? How do we understand how the materials that we have access to on a physical level provide us the, the human flourishing and the ability to serve a higher purpose, higher power, whatever it might be. And it strikes me that this is a manifestation. And I'm curious what you think of this. It strikes me that digital addiction, as you call it, is a manifestation of materialism where we're starting to allow the materials that we are supposed to be using to serve a higher power to kind of dominate us, take over our physiology and control our brains rather than using these materials and these really powerful tools and owning them, making them our, our, our B word for, for a lack of a better, uh, lack of a better term to help us go create, help us go produce, help us go again, serve other people, serve a higher power, serve a greater cause. Um, so it really strikes me that this is a manifestation of an extreme form of, of intense materialism, but not for the purpose of using the material for anything productive, more so that the material ends up using our, our brain and our wiring against us, so to speak. And I think that's the complicated nature of, especially as we talk about technology and innovation, because in many ways, the benefits from the innovation of technology from the smartphone, from our ability to use technology for so many different aspects, whether it's to create or whether it's even to connect. You know, I'm currently in Thailand and you're in Florida and this is how we're having this conversation, right? And so that's a beautiful thing. At the same time, the innovation of, of technology has also led to these sorts of issues as well, right? And you look at social media, and I think social media is a fascinating case study. And as access to technology has expanded, as more and more of the world has come online, more voices have been raised. And in so many ways, that's a beneficial thing. And also, we're seeing a huge divide. We're seeing a huge toxic culture that's beginning to emerge. And we have misinformation. We have a lot of different issues that have also come out from this innovation. And so I think it's always complicated. And I think digital addiction is much closer to an eating disorder of sorts where you're not going to be able to stop eating like you could with a substance use, alcohol, drugs. With tech, you're still going to need to engage in tech. You might even be required to use it for school or for work or just to be connected in society. But learning how to gain the benefits from it without the consequences and the, and the risks and the potential harms is what this is all about. And I think that uh, certainly more education needs to be provided for individuals growing up 
to know how they can actually keep it under control and gain the benefits without the risks that are certainly there. Small detail, but where do you look when you're on a Zoom call? Are you looking at me in the eyes or are you looking at the camera? So this is something I'm always fascinated by because you talk about connection, but we're talking, we're sort of face-to-face, but I feel like if I'm looking at you in the eyes, I'm not looking in the eyes. And if I look at the camera, I am looking at you eyes, but I'm not looking in the eyes. That's a, it's a freaky trick of the mind. Absolutely. I, it's a, it's a mix for me. Uh, you know, what's interesting is I do a lot of media and in media interviews, I'm very conscious uh, of looking in the camera itself, because I know that that's going to go on, uh, you know, TV and it's going to be played. And if I'm looking at the camera, that's really helpful. And there was an interview recently that was posted uh, where I thought I was actually getting on a background call. And then I guess it was recorded and, and that call was actually put up. And it was funny because in that call, because it was kind of more of a background call, I was a bit more casual. So it wasn't kind of looking directly into the camera at all times. And I could see the, the distinct difference in how I presented, how I uh, performed, and, and ultimately probably how the audience also connected. So I, I think that definitely with Zoom or, or with these sorts of calls, if I want to look at you, I'm not looking at the camera and there's a di- different feeling there. Uh, but it can also feel, I'm not sure what your experience is you could share, but sometimes looking at the camera also feels a little bit awkward uh, because I'm, I, I feel like I'm looking into the eye of, of the computer. I'm not looking you know, at you, right? And so one trick sometimes is to actually move your, uh, like I can move yourself under the camera so it kind of is similar, uh, but then I'm looking above your head. Uh, our mutual friend, Joe Polish, calls it Cloudlandia. And I guess in Cloudlandia, you don't watch the laptop, the laptop watches you. Um, it's a, a funny phenomenon, but it, it's, a, it's a true like, example of how this digital craziness is totally rewiring how we interact and how we connect in the physical world. Um, cool. So for a second, so that's, that's awesome. Could you maybe dive in if you're, if you're, if you're familiar enough with it to what, can you just talk about how this is a real underlying materials based physiological problem? It's not that this is, you know, people really like being on social media because it's fun and it's hip, but it's a real underlying physiological problem, just like being addicted to cocaine or being addicted to opioids. Certainly is. And I don't always personally like to draw the um, similarity necessarily, or the comparison, I should say, between, say, a drug addiction and a digital addiction for a number of reasons. I don't think it's always the most persuasive argument. Uh, You know, if I was to say, okay, Max, would you prefer to be addicted to video games or, or meth? You know, you're going to choose video games every single time, right? And you should. Yet, the impact that someone can experience in their life from a digital addiction, let's say video games, can be absolutely devastating. And it can, it can seriously disrupt not just their, uh, their own life, but also the lives of their loved ones. And this doesn't just impact productivity, school, work, but their health. Uh, there have been more extreme cases uh, around the world, especially in Asia, of individuals who have actually died from just playing video games for 22 hours straight and had heart failure. Can I just jump in for one second? When you say video games, I mean, in my mind, we're not just talking about video games. I know that that's your specific area of expertise, but mm-hmm. there's also porn, 
There's also, you know, binge watching television. There's also, you know, narcissistically obsessing and creating your whole life around social media. So just to, just to reframe it too. I mean, at least from my perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And and these issues that we're seeing, you know, all generally kind of contextualize around gaming. Uh, it's the area that certainly has the most research behind it as well. Um, but these issues generally apply, you know, across the tech spectrum and, the impact, though, is significant. Uh, in my own personal life, you know, I dropped out of high school. I never went to college. I was gaming 16 hours a day, all day, every day. I was basically completely unresponsive to any intervention. And I even wrote a suicide note. I was pretending to have jobs, deceiving my family. Like gaming in my life was the only thing I wanted to do other than, you know, showering, eating, and sleeping. And so in some ways, you know, it's like, sure, I wasn't doing drugs and and some may argue that, well, at least they're at home and they're safe, right? Some parents will justify it that way. But it was having a really significant impact in my life and, and certainly for my family. And others are seeing similar uh, impacts and the physical health impact of sitting on a computer, playing video games 16 hours a day, not exercising, you can see muscle atrophy, eye strain, major eyesight problems. Uh, so the impact goes, I think, beyond just someone wasting their time, right? And we'll get into it later, but what we're seeing uh, economically also, I think, is really interesting on a more meta scale because uh, the impact of a generation of young people who are just prefer to play video games and to say work or be productive members of society, I think also has a significant impact on our culture at large. And so these are areas that I think we need to be paying attention to. And certainly some governments around the world are paying a lot of attention to this. Uh, in South Korea, for instance, a study estimated that the socioeconomic loss due to excessive internet use was between $1.5 and $4.5 billion in 2009. So these issues do impact not just an individual, but society at large as well. So before we we dive deeper into some of the the other countries around the world, I mean, China did something pretty pretty gnarly around this um, this topic a few a few weeks ago. Could you? I'm going to put you on the spot here for some from for some data, and you can feel free to decline. But can you maybe give three or four data points that you've seen and that you use? Um, you know, when you're when you're making the case that this is a real problem. In addition to that South Korea study. Could you give three or four data points for your audience just to illustrate what really is going on here and the magnitude and scope of what's happening? Well, for, first, I would start with there's over 3 billion active gamers worldwide. And so that's almost wow, all really? people. You know, this is like Ooh. the the way I describe it is the, like the next generation, almost all of them are playing video games regularly, right? So over 83% of teenage girls in the United States play video games regularly and almost all boys, like it's about 97% of boys. Now, not all of them have a problem. Prevalence rates, you know, the most high quality kind of meta-analyses find globally prevalence is about 3% of gamers would have what would be classified as a gaming disorder. So on the disordered side of the spectrum. Now I see gaming 
and let's just use gaming for, for a second as a continuum from recreational play to at-risk play to problematic play to disordered play. So there's varying degrees of harms and the severity of those harms also fall on a spectrum. That's but 90 even, million people. Even 3% is significant. But if we're Crazy. looking at more at-risk or problematic play, studies can find anywhere up to like 17% of gamers are experiencing these harms in some way, shape, and form. And it's not just someone experiencing a harm from gaming, from playing a lot, as an example, but by spending their time in that way, there's also experiences they have on these platforms that can also be quite harmful from just, let's say, toxicity perspective, right? So being on social media and how that impacts your mental health how that impacts your worldview. And beyond that, the productivity argument of when you're spending six hours a day, seven hours a day on social media or on games, what's the consequence of where that time could be spent to really truly make an impact for the world? And I really, uh, I really like wonder how many of these individuals are just playing games or just spending their time online and they have amazing gifts they could offer the world uh, that are just being consumed by social media and, and technology. And so I mean, I especially also, especially in the context of there's no more shop classes in schools in the United States there. I mean, there's 3d printers everywhere. And it, I, this is an interesting phenomenon that I've noticed. A lot of the kids I know who game are also really good with things like 3d printing and and CAD and whatnot, because they have the access to the hardware because their computers are so powerful. Let's bucket that for a second, but there's no more woodworking. I mean, I, I would imagine that the statistics of kids who are playing Little League or playing soccer or whatever it might be are, are down as a result of um, you know the productivity being down. So you don't have the and team we'll building continue. there. <clears throat> yeah, so you don't have the team building there. Um, what, are, what are some other areas where this might be taking away from? What other areas of productivity? I mean, 90 million is so many kids to be missing out on those experiences. Yeah, I'd say entrepreneurship certainly is, is going to be a big part of it. Like, you know, it, it's just simply easier to, it's easier and more convenient and more accessible to just kind of spend your time online than to engage in the world. And I think that it's, it's also the soft skills very much that are being impacted because I guess the classic example I, I use is, you know, when my parents were younger, they got kicked out of the house and had to go outside and play, right? And even uh, I'm 33 and you know, definitely when I was younger, you know, it was dial-up internet and then online, uh, like high-speed internet came in. But prior to that, there was a period of my life where like I went outside and played and that was fun. But by being outside and having to play, there were so many of these skills that you developed because you kind of had no choice, right? So you were social, hey, neighborhood kids, come play with us so we can like do something together. You were creative. You engaged with your environment around you because you had to kind of be proactive to engage in the world because otherwise you were just going to sit there and be bored. Whereas now we've almost completely reversed that concept. And instead we live in a world where we believe the world is meant to entertain us. So we are meant to sit here and the world is meant to give us all this content, all this entertainment, instead of it's our job to actually go and engage in the world and really find fulfillment from that. And so it's an entire way of being and all these skills 
that we're just no longer really developing in the same way. And I think, you know, further, you know, if we get back to a data point, the average screen time for toddlers is three hours a day. So that's under two years old, three hours a day. And I don't know why a toddler needs any screen time, to be frank. Obviously, it's a very effective babysitter and it kind of keeps them quiet and everyone's overwhelmed. And, you know, I, I understand how it happens. But what I think is tragic is that often the individuals I see who come forward to game quitters, they're in their early 20s, they're 22, 23 years old, and they've never had the opportunity in their life to actually have other hobbies or to have other activities because from their youngest age, they've been put in front of a screen and that's just what they know. And so I think that too is something that, you know, as we go forward in another couple of years, five, 10 years from now, I'm certainly concerned that this next generation just aren't going to have these skills developed or even the opportunity. They won't even have had the opportunity to engage in the world differently because they were just put in front of a screen to be occupied. Wow. And then they're going to raise their kids to do the same thing because hey, they don't know any better. They don't know how, how they were supposed to be raised. And you put that against the backdrop of kids going from, I'm going to make a really messed up joke here, but kids going from getting sexually abused in the Boy Scouts to getting sexually abused on Fortnite, where they're now running around in skimpy outfits dressed as, you know, 22 year old, beautiful women, which is another crazy phenomenon to me. Like, why do video games now need to become sexualized? What is the, the intent and purpose and the impact packs of that where, you know, my brother, when he was 11 years old, was running around dressed as a skimpy, skimpy, I don't even know what, how to describe it in language that's safe for this podcast. Just look up Fortnite characters and they're all just girls dressed in the skimpiest clothing you can imagine. And little boys are running around um, in these avatars. It's a crazy phenomenon. So they've gone from Boy Scouts, and I apologize for making the, the sexualization joke about that because I, you know, the Boy Scouts, did, they did do some great work, but they also did some really sketchy, skeevy things. So. Anyone who sexually abused anyone in the Boy Scouts, you're an asshole. Anyone who didn't, Boy Scouts, you know, it was pretty cool. I never did Boy Scouts, but I was always jealous of folks who got to go live in the woods and, you know, learn how to make fire, learn how to shoot a rifle, learn how to tie knots and all these useful skills. Meanwhile, when I was a kid, I also was playing video games and, and whatnot. I was lucky I caught the tail end of kind of the Little League craze and, and played ice hockey and got myself out and really learned how to engage in the world. It's fascinating what's going on. And so you're telling me that toddlers, two years old, are um, are getting three hours of screen time. Crazy. I mean, there's one thing that could be interesting. There's a semiconductor shortage right now. So maybe that'll, the, the upside of that is people will stop wasting the semiconductor uh, um, abundance that we do have left and stop using it for toddlers and start using it for more productive, less harmful activities. Right. And even if we look at adolescence, you know, studies have come out, this is pre-COVID, that the average screen time for adolescents, teenagers was six, seven, eight hours a day. And that was recreational screen time. And that wasn't even taking into account the time that they were on it for school, right? Which a lot of schools now, kids are spending a lot of time. This was pre-COVID or post-COVID? Pre-COVID. And COVID, the rates obviously of screen time have just skyrocketed. And so it's just, what does it look like when we have an entire generation? 
who they just exist online and they've been existing online from the earliest age possible. And that's the world. That's how they, that's how they conceptualize the world. That's how they learn about it. And, you know, there are so many uh, opportunities with that. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not doom and gloom here. I do believe there's a lot of, you know, positives that can come from that as well. Uh, but I also think that the social skills, the ability to be proactive in your life and to really engage in the world around you, to be independent, to understand that there's more to the world than just the next YouTube video to watch, the next TikTok, and also the ability to truly connect. Like empathy is, uh, it's very important. When you see someone in person, when you connect with them, it's different, right? So people who uh, send me hate mail or, or YouTube comments, right? Like they, they wouldn't say things like that to me if they were looking at me in my eyes because they would see that like I'm a human and it, it's a different experience. But online, I'm just an avatar. I'm a logo and the, the level of empathy is completely different. And so I, I think that the truth is we don't actually know what the long-term impacts of this are going to be from toddlers having three hours of screen time a day from the moment they're born, because those toddlers are not 20 years old yet, but they will be. And I certainly think there's enough evidence out there to suggest that there's certainly concerns to be aware of. I feel very grateful. I was raised as an Orthodox Jew, which means on Saturdays when I was growing up, there was no screens. wasn't wasn't an option for us. We would unplug. We'd go to synagogue. We'd go off, you know, to another family friends for lunch, etc. And I was walking around my community the other day when I was back home for the Jewish holidays with my with my family. And I haven't been living at home for a while, so I've been living in other communities and cities, doing my thing, whatever. And I was back home. And I was walking around the community and for the first time in, in years, I noticed that none of the teenagers who were walking around the community on one of the Jewish holidays were on their phones. They were all engaged, living their lives, out exploring the world. And it's, uh, it's something that I treasure and that I'm very grateful that I was able to have in my life, my upbringing, not necessarily for the religious aspect, which I am, but also from the, from the practical aspect of, hey, there's a natural day every week where there's no phones. And now it's something I've started to do. Like when I go, when I go on a surf trip, for example, which I try to do once a year for a few days, I'll just totally unplug, no phone. If you need to reach me, um, too bad. You'll figure out if anything bad happens to me, someone will call you and tell you, um, or I'm with someone who has their phone or something. So clearly curious what you think about that. Like, how do we, how do we get back to a place where we can remove the technology layer from the, from the conversation, uh, at least for a few hours, a few days, et cetera, because I know a lot of parents, like their kids are always on their phones. The parents are always on their phones. So how would the kids have an opportunity not to be? For me, it, it started like, uh, over the last year, uh, by taking Saturdays, uh, ironically completely off. I, you know, I wake up on Saturday, I go to a stretch class in the morning. And by the time I come home, my phone's kind of put away and I'm not looking at my phone the rest of the day. I'm not really on technology at all. Uh, I go to the beach with a group of friends. I, I, I'm here in Thailand, in Koh Samoy, which is an island. and I'm very fortunate to have a beach to go to. And for me personally, uh, surfing was also one of those activities because the beautiful thing about surfing is like, I'm in the water, there's no phone. And so it was a natural way that I could kind of find that time offline without 
feeling like I was restricting myself, right? Because often when you feel like you're being restricted, a lot of people just from a personality standpoint will then just crave it and it will be a full of tension and anxiety and it's not a fun experience. Whereas I look forward to Saturdays now where I can just kind of get clear from all the noise and just be super present with my friends at the beach and floating in the water and just really enjoying nature in that way. Uh, Hiking was another activity that I really started to engage in because I was out in nature and cell phone reception wasn't very good, right? So it it made it very easy for me to just, okay, my phone's going to be put away. It's going to be in a backpack. It's going to be in a car and I'll come back to it when I'm done. And so I encourage people, you know, maybe it's one day a week, maybe it's a Saturday, maybe it's a Sunday, maybe it's just half a day where your phone's kind of put away and ideally try and get out of the house, try and go do an activity where you're engaged enough that you're not kind of just sitting around on the couch being like, I'm so bored, right? Because when you're bored and you're not used to kind of just being present with yourself when you're bored, then you crave the technology. And I also think like boredom is where creativity is born, right? So we, we live in this culture certainly where boredom is like this really like thing we want to avoid when actually boredom just sitting with yourself can actually be this incredibly motivating, uh, reflective experience. And we don't constantly need all this noise. Uh, so for me, it was that finding activities that made it easy for me to not want to be on technology. Uh, but it's been a process. It hasn't been easy. Even though I do all this work, it's been a challenge for years to try and find that balance. And I just keep working at it a little bit. I mean, especially as you get older and you start working and then you have to be on Slack. And if you're not on Slack and responsive on Slack, your team starts to judge you and they get pissed off at you and upset and disappointed that you're not responding to your emails. So setting those boundaries is really difficult, especially for adults, because we're so ingrained in this in this crazy culture. I mean, every day used to be be like that, where you put your you didn't have a phone. So you were out in the world living your life, doing your thing. It was a short period where you might have spent most of your time on a on an assembly line before that evolved into now you spend most of your time on a computer. But most of human history, you were out doing your thing. I mean, yeah, you might have been doing work and hunting and whatnot, but you're still doing your thing. If you look at there's some crazy YouTube videos out there. I'll link to some of them in the show notes. But if you look at like um Maasai warrior tribes in Africa <clears throat> and you look at their their hunting parties, right? Those guys don't look like they're working at all. They spend 40 hours out on a hunt, you know, just so that they can go get food for their families. I'm not saying we need to go revert back to being a, you know, hunting gathering societies. I'm just drawing the, the 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 parallel that these guys, they spend 40 hours working, doing really intense physical labor. That's kind of dangerous, but they're not bored. And a lot of the time they're sitting around waiting. They're not bored. They're engaged. They're they're flourishing. They're thriving. They're in flow, and they're doing something that is engaging and engaging with the world, not necessarily engaging in an anxious way with with technology and media. <clears throat> so I find that fascinating. If I can quickly, I've had the uh, the the real pleasure of going to Tanzania, Africa, three times, and spending time with rural villages there. Uh, we've went on on mission trips with groups of friends to build wells or like bring resources to help locals get clean water in, in a number of areas that did not have it. And for me, those experiences were, were truly life-changing because I was in these rural villages where the situations are, are not great. You know, I've seen, I've seen villages 
where their water source was shared with animals like cows and that had cow feces in it while they're scooping up water to feed to their newborn children. And, you know, I've, I've witnessed this with my own eyes. I've seen the villages where kids are coughing constantly and they're very sick. And the next year when we come back and they have a clean well for a year, the kids like physically look different. They're way less sick. You know, I've seen that impact, but these kids really touched my heart because it was an experience where I got to see how they engaged with the world. So they didn't have a lot of technology. They also, I don't even think even knew what the word boredom even meant because it was just not a concept for them. It was just, they would play. I saw a a school of children just dance and sing and be in a circle and do it for five, six hours straight. No problem. Ironically, the challenge uh, to engage was more from me and my friends because we, we didn't know necessarily how to actually engage with individuals without technology. And, you know, some of the, like the, the most fulfilling moments of my life when I was over there was just playing tag with groups of kids and chasing them around and hearing them laugh and hearing them smile and, and just seeing like for them, they engaged in the world differently and they were resourceful and, and they were happy. You know, these individuals didn't have basic things like clean water yet they were some of the happiest, like having the most fun individuals I've ever seen in my life. And it was always enlightening when I get on a plane to head back to America and all of a sudden I'd hear nothing but babies crying. And I just hear people who are just staring at their phones. And the thing that stood out to me when I was in Africa actually was I very rarely ever heard a baby cry. There were a lot of babies around, but I never really heard them cry very much. And at least my hypothesis was that the mother-baby connection, the connection within the village was very strong. And so often the babies were, uh, maybe their needs were being met quicker or the connection was uh, more in depth. Whereas once you got on a plane and a baby was crying, you just put a smartphone in front of them and all of a sudden they're quiet, right? And so I think that, again, these experiences really helped me. And uh, I think there's so much that we can learn from different cultures as well. As our mutual friend, I'll, I'll shout, him, shout him out again. Joe Polish says, the only way to beat addiction is with connection. Um, and it seems like the, 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 the corollary to that is the only way to, to kind of dampen connection is through addiction, um, which is really horrible to, uh, to, to watch as it's happened to our, to our culture. Um, I want to double click on one point and then move on to China and how the hell this actually happened to the United States and when, when this inflection point started to turn. Thank you for sharing those data points. I know that this was, this was all started based on, uh, based on that. It was crazy. 90 million people who are at, at a minimum sort of addicted to gaming in the world. It's, it's gotta be screwed up. So how does that happen? One of the things that I'm always advocating for is I'm extremely pro-technology. Technology's created more human flourishing, more abundance than any other force in the world. It helps us not die from hurricanes, not die from tigers, live longer lives, and, and has the potential to allow us to live more fulfilling, more, more divine, and more present lives. 
Um, but when you abject your responsibility to, to responsibility for anything, whether it be your responsibility to make sure that your food supply is secure, your responsibility to make sure that your stuff is coming from a moral, ethical, and secure place, um, or your responsibility to meaningfully engage with your kids, you start to run into all these different problems. Um, because if you're not taking that responsibility, someone else is going to take over that. They're going to view it as an opportunity and an opportunity to, to gain control over you or sell you things that you don't necessarily need or are not good for you. And I think different area, this has manifested itself in a few different areas. Again, fleshing out a little bit of a of my thinking on this year for the first time as applied to addiction. But you see this with the supply chain problems we're having right now. For the past, there was an article in 2017 from the New York Post. This the headline was something like, Americans don't really want to know where their stuff comes from. This was around the time that all the news was coming about about Uyghur, Uyghur Muslims in China being used for slave labor to produce cotton in Xinjiang and other products for Apple and whatnot. And they did a study and it basically said Americans don't give a crap where their stuff comes from as long as it's cheap and abundant. But now we're having that come back to bite us in the ass as we're seeing that our supply chains are not reliable. They're not resilient because no, we, we as consumers didn't ask, where does our stuff come from? How do I optimize? I might be paying a higher price now, but how do I optimize for my, I call it my net human flourishing over time, basically the net present value of human flourishing over time. So not that I just have cheap things now. That I'm using to fuel unnecessary, you know, addictive behaviors. But how do I optimize for flourishing where maybe I'm paying a little bit more now and I'm not buying these things where I don't need them, but I'm paying the true cost to them where it's not being subsidized by communist governments. It's not being subsidized by human rights violations. Um, and it's not being subsidized where I, where I end up being the product, which allows tech companies to sell me things for much cheaper. So how do we how do we retake that responsibility? And I think one of the ways that we've gotten into this mess is we've started to object our responsibility because it's become so easy to. And we can click a button and we just have whatever we whatever we want. We don't have to think about if we need it or if buying this right now leads to the most sustainable, not in the environmental sense, but in the kind of optimizing for human flourishing over a period of time sense. You know, if you buy an iPhone that's a thousand dollars that's made with crappy labor in China, when China has an energy shortage like they're having now. And their shipping problems getting out into the United States, you know, you might not be able to get the newest and greatest iPhone when you actually need it for your business project this year because iPhone just cut their iPhone production by ten or twenty million units because they're not able to access chips. Um, so I, I really like to think through that concept, and, and this addiction area, especially when you're talking about parenting, really resonates that with me because it seems as though. Rather than you, you mentioned how babies in, in Africa seem much more connected to their to their mothers, to their tribes, et cetera, which meant less crying. So rather than than us taking responsibility to really parent our kids, to raise our children, to foster connection and foster flourishing livelihood um, and excitement and engagement with the world, we've kind of abjected that responsibility to technology and cheap technology at that. I mean, Solving ADHD and things like this is another example where we just overprescribe medication. I mean, I was a, I was a byproduct of this when I was a kid. You know, rather than teaching me how to use the skills and use the brain that I have, we said, "No, you don't conform to the system. We're not going to even try to teach you. Here's a pill; it'll sort of fix you, but it's not going to really fix you. It's just going to make you amenable, so that we, as the responsible party, don't have to take responsibility, and you're just kind of play by our rules." I'm curious what you think of that whole thread of how objecting responsibility has resulted in the advent of these addictive behaviors and the minimization of connection. Certainly. And I think looking at parenting, the 
example for me that I've touched on, but I'll, I'll kind of expand a little bit further is, is around giving young kids a phone because it's a very effective babysitter. Now, traditionally, kids were crying, parents were going for lunch and dinner with friends, and there was a need to you know, keep your kid occupied or engaged or quiet so you could have your dinner and so forth. And traditionally, you would have prepared for that by bringing a book or bringing some toys or you know, just whatever tools you had to help your kid kind of be engaged and not be disruptive for everyone at the restaurant. But now we have this very effective, works perfectly almost every time for as long as you need it. Cell phone that's just in our pocket, it's always on us. And so it's very convenient and accessible to use it. And this almost creates this sort of like impulsive sort of behavior of your kids crying and maybe they actually need some engagement, right? Maybe they're, they need some love and you have something on you that can instantly get them to be quiet. And so the parent is now also not developing the skills they need to actually connect with their kids. And that has uh, knock-on effects down the line of the kid has never been taught how to cope with normal life events and have these strategies to actually deal with what happens in life because they've just always been numbed essentially with a phone or with technology. And so this this problem existed before and there was a way that we approached it before that has now changed. And a big part of that is just the convenience and accessibility of technology as it's so effective. And I think that's a lot of kind of what's going on now is just parents are, I mean, they're stressed, they're overworked. They don't necessarily have their own like kind of emotional resilience. And they also have this phone in their pocket. And when we look at kind of where these problems really began to to kind of accelerate, I think the smartphone very much is a key component of that. And we can talk more about that, you know, gaming and technology issues as it relates to the smartphone. But I really think if we look at like what a systematic sort of issue here is, very much parents having smartphones and no longer having to kind of approach these problems in ways that they've always had these problems, but they've approached them differently before because they had to, and now they don't have to. And that almost convenience accessibility piece, I think, relates so much to, we don't know where our stuff comes from, but it's convenient, it's fast, we can order it right away, and so we don't have to think about it. And the same thing with the smartphone. It's fast, it's convenient, it solves the problem of our kids crying and we feel a bit embarrassed in the restaurant, but we're not thinking, well, what's that going to be like in five years, 10 years? What sort of impact does this actually have? And is this actually solving the problem that I think it's solving or is it just creating a different one? Yeah. Crazy. Well, where did this come from? What, what happened and when did this change in the United States? You mentioned the smartphones. So let's maybe drill into that. What, what, is, what, is, what is the underlying um, history of, of this problem in the U.S.? I mean, we're seeing increased mental illness problems crazy mental health crisis, more people are suicidal, more young men are 
we'll get to this towards the end of the conversation, but, you know, dropping out of the workforce, you have young, young girls and, and boys who are crazy anxious. We have, I mean, and, and I'm sure we've all had more run-ins with, with narcissists and sociopaths as of late than we, than any other time in our, um, in our, in our modern history, or maybe not, it might just be a, uh, a feature of humanity, not a bug of, of technology. But yeah, where, when did this start and what is the, what is the history here? So there was a study done by Eric Hurst out of the University of Chicago, and, and they really investigated like, you know, where did this shift begin to take place? And, and so they pinpointed around 2004 and sort of innovations to gaming and technology that began to occur around then. I very much see the introduction of the smartphone as you know, a monumental shift uh, in our history. And in so many ways, it's been a positive. And, and certainly when it comes to gaming and it comes to addiction, you know, certainly a lot of negatives that have come from that as well. A big reason is that you know, that then put, for instance, gaming straight into your pocket. So you no longer had to go to the store to buy the game. It was just in your pocket. Beyond that, it also fundamentally changed the business models of how games and apps are designed. So prior to smartphone, if you wanted to play video games, you went to the store, you bought the game for 50 bucks, you got the game and you you went home and you played it. Whereas once the smartphone came in, in the app store, it introduced the ability to give you the game for free. And then with in-app purchases, to be able to sell you or, or obtain more currency from you within the game through microtransactions and, and you know, a lot of different monetization schemes. So games became free to play and they came under a business model, which would be games as a service. So then the business model and the incentives also dramatically changed because prior to uh, the free to play model, the motivation or the incentive for a company was to get as many people as possible to buy and play the game not necessarily to keep them playing the same game. Well, it's also, I imagine, it's also, I imagine to buy as many games as they can. So there's no incentive to get them hooked on one game. They want them buying more games over time. Yes. And from kind of the same company. So, you know, a classic game I love to play growing up was Starcraft. And so there's vanilla, there's vanilla Starcraft, and then there's Starcraft Brood War. And Brood War came out a few years after the original. And so kind of at most, you were able to get a consumer to buy the first game and then buy the second game and then hopefully buy titles from the same company because they like the games that that company is making. Whereas now, if you take a game like World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft is a game I played as well. And that game is still existing, not just in its uh, original form, but there's been continued expansions over the last 15 years, every year, every couple of years, there's, there's a continued innovation within the game and there's continued opportunity to spend money in the game at basically all times. And so there are individuals who have been playing that game for 15 years and they've just existed and lived within that world. And so I, I think that the, the smartphone changing the business model changed the intent, incentives significantly. And it also, it's hard to describe just how fundamentally the game design changed when games themselves became monetized, not just by purchasing the game, but by playing the game itself through in-app purchases. Because now your credit card was attached to your phone. And so now get the game for free, but then spend money within the game. And 
the thing that's different about a phone is that it's game, like apps or games are able to send you notifications. They're able to send you alerts. They're able to continue to ping you to get back in the game and to spend money. And we've seen like the, the video game industry has grown substantially. It's now larger than the music and film industries combined. And even if we look at COVID, one of the true big winners during COVID was the gaming industry. And it's continuing to grow year over year. It's seeing great growth numbers and the monetization piece of that, I think, is really, really key. And I think that uh, the next innovation that's fundamentally going to radically change gaming is cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. And a big aspect of that is just briefly, you can now give people digital ownership of the items that they get within the game through NFTs, or you can also introduce a new business model, which is play to earn. And we're starting to see more and more games using cryptocurrency where people have the opportunity to earn cryptocurrency by playing a game, which then leads them to, they're able to earn money by playing the game. And they can essentially live and work within a metaverse in that sense. I have a controversial take on, um, on crypto but I'm going to drop a bomb and probably piss a few of my friends off and other people who listen to this conversation, to this conversation. But, um, the, the problem I have with cryptocurrency is kind of the same underlying, I don't know if it's a hope or a problem that I see with, with gaming addiction as a whole, which is all of these systems take really intense amount of compute power to run. Um, and, and like I said earlier, we're having a serious computer shortage right now or, or, or integrated circuit shortage. Um, it's not just the production capacity, it's also the materials that go into these things and the energy required to, to run these systems. It's really like physically the supply chains for video gaming. I don't think, I don't think most people think about this, but when you play a video game, there's a crazy supply chain underlying the video game that you're playing. Um, you have to mine the materials, which it's silicon. There's crazy amounts of rare, or not crazy amounts. There's small amounts of rare earths and computers because you need magnets to, to, to run your hard drives. And to run your speakers and to run whatever the other systems you have, um, you have other esoteric elements, you know, tantalum in your capacitors, for example, and you have this this really intense amount of supply chain that goes into these systems. So when you when we're talking about something like cryptocurrency, that only requires more 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 intense supply chains, and you kind of have this pseudo pseudo feeling like you're actually earning currency in a game. And I guess this goes back to your point where. You feel like you're earning currency. Now you're getting paid to play the game. Oh, I'm 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 getting paid. There's creating wealth playing this video game. It's creating positive feedback. I'm getting rewarded. But that could be taken away tomorrow if our crazy complex supply chains can't can't fill the need of this digital world, which is kind of non-existent. It's just air that it, we have the impression and the illusion that it really exists. And someone will say, but it lives in the cloud and it's on every computer and it's decentralized. Okay, what happens when that system is trying to grow at 50% year over year and that growth just stops? How do the network effects get impacted when there's no new user growth coming in to subsidize that system or computers start to break or or you know the algorithm for the for the game has it you know scaling and exponentially in complexity as more buildings are getting built in the digital world and now we don't have the new GPU, the newest and fastest GPU that can render that increase in complexity. And so this is a whole other side of the conversation around gaming that we don't talk about. And, and we'll, we'll get into this a little bit, but you're also taking people out of the workforce at the same time 
we'll talk about this towards the end, taking people out of the workforce at the same time, which then makes even more supply chain pressure. So there's less GPUs being made. And it's this intense feedback loop that I, I see some serious problems happening down the road. Um, what do you think of that, of that train of thought? I mean, you're the first person to bring it up. And, and so I think it's, it's, a, it's a really key point. Uh, the way I relate it a little bit is uh, when, I w- when I've been in Africa and I've seen these sorts of tribes and you know, I've seen the Maasai tribes and I've seen these individuals, one, one thing that's always kind of stood out to me is as much as uh, often there are many people in the world who judge these groups and you know, why do you live in a rural village, rural village without clean water and these sorts of things, if we lost electricity, Right? Or, or if our culture really, you know, our society uh, had major, major issues, they're the ones who are going to survive, not us, right? Because they know how to go hunt for their food. They know how to survive without, uh, you know, heat and electricity and these different aspects that we simply just do not have the same knowledge or, or skill development in the same way. And so I think that your point around not just the supply chain, but also like what happens when these things change, I think is, is definitely valid because I think that we live currently very much in uh, almost the illusion of it, right? That we're invincible. Everything's just going to kind of continue the way it is and everything's fine. And really when you get kind of underneath some of these things, maybe not so fine. Right. And I think that a lot of your points are, are really clear on that. So yeah, I think that should be investigated further and, and maybe more awareness needs to come to actually like the growth of the gaming industry in so many ways is seen as this hugely positive endeavor, but maybe there are, are other effects that are being left kind of unspoken. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's very difficult to run this podcast without getting down the like survivalist prepper rabbit hole, which I try not to do. <laughs> um, but there's, I mean, technology, I keep saying it, it's such a powerful force and we can use it to increase our resiliency, increase our, our ability to self-sustain, increase our net, net flourishing far into the future. Um, or we can have 90 million people get addicted to video games and be taken out of the workforce and then not be producing because for every person who has a GPU, there's, okay, maybe not for every, but every you know GPU line that comes out, there's thousands of people who are responsible for actually making that GPU line. Um, whether it be the mining, the the processing, the transportation, the truck drivers who drive the drive the goods, the people who design the chips, the people who go and fabricate the chips, the people who go and package the chips. It's a crazy supply chain. And we need more people who are who are operating there instead of getting addicted to video games. Before we get into that, I've been meaning to ask you this question because I think it's fascinating. One of the differences between the West and, or I guess the free world and the communist world is that the communist world can just say, this is not good for the for the whole for the you know for the whole of society. We're going to restrict it. I think that that's evil and immoral, but it still happens. Um, I think the free world needs to find a way to counter this. But one of the things that did happen, and it was big Wall Street Journal article all over the news. I know everyone in the gaming world was talking about it. Is a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago now, China said, "Hey, if you're a school school kid, you are no longer able to play video games during the week." Can you tell us a little bit about that? What the implications of that are, and how you know the free world might be able to answer that without top-down government intervention? We've talked a little bit about that. That that what we could do, you know, individual responsibility, taking ownership of how we're connecting with our kids and with our society. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what China did there, because I think it's a 
very interesting signal for what's really going on and how serious this problem is. Yeah, it, it's an interesting issue, especially now I have contacts on the ground there. And uh, I've been seeing this. The truth is this has been evolving for the last few years. And the, their announcements kind of over the last month got a lot of the attention. Uh, but many of these restrictions were already in place uh, over the last couple of years. And they've been kind of escalating. Uh, so initially it was around they can't play as many hours and they can't spend as much money. And then there needed to be verification of their identity to get access to games. And that's usually using facial recognition and like their identification being as part of a central system. And now the latest in China is that if you're a minor, you are not allowed to play Monday to Thursday. And then you're only allowed to play up to three hours uh, between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and holidays. And there are also uh, you know, pr- pretty intense spending limits within games. And uh, if you're under 16 years old, you're not allowed to, to be streaming yourself on live video either. Uh, and there are a couple other regulations in place as well. And this is something that I would never imagine would be uh, an approach that the West would take. Uh, I mean, even just the facial recognition and, and access to uh, underage or you know content that would be for people who are of legal age. Uh, even that issue itself, age verification in the digital age, is still a very hot topic in the West for sure. Uh, whereas you know in, in China they just instituted it and that was that. So from my sources on the ground. What they are sharing is that the uh, justification of it or the concern from the government would be around productivity and academics. And China has an aging population and protecting their young people uh, would be a huge priority. Um, And so if they're spending all their time gaming or on the internet, they're not being productive, they're not getting jobs, they're not pursuing their academics. And so the regime, that would be sort of their uh, rationalization. Now, obviously, there's varying degrees. Which uh, makes sense. Truth to this. Listen, I don't agree with pretty much anything that the Chinese Communist Party does. And I don't really agree with them regulating this. But that justification makes a whole lot of sense. And as individuals, it is definitely worth paying attention to that signal um, that, that they're sending out. I mean, that's that's my take on it. I'm wondering... Do you, do you resonate with that at all? For me, I, I the one aspect of this that I think is uh, is something interesting to me is that I've I've seen these regulations continue to escalate for the last few years, and there, there's 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 some interesting things happening here. So first of all, the regulations continue to escalate. To me, one point of view would be that. Uh, they needed to continue to escalate because they weren't getting the results they wanted. And the other is that China owns a significant amount of the gaming industry. So the largest gaming company in the world is Tencent, which is based out of China. And Tencent owns a large amount of other game companies. So Can you give some China, examples? I, I believe Tencent owns Riot. Uh, which makes League of Legends and a number of others. And so 
in some ways, this restriction actually uh, is counterintuitive to their uh, from, to, to their economic opportunity. Because by restricting games, and when they've made these announcements, stock prices for these gaming companies have plummeted, and they've lost huge, huge amount of market cap. And so that actually goes against their own economic incentive, which seems kind of very much against generally how China operates. However, there are other signs that some of these uh, acts are also for uh, more cultural or political reasons, right? So part of these regulations also had to do with, for instance, uh, games now are not allowed to be sexualized uh, and game characters are not allowed to be sexualized in China. Games will not be approved if they have these sorts of costumes and, and figures. And so there are some of those uh, sort of regulations coming into place as well. There's also a, uh, you know, I, this one really made me laugh, but uh, when gaming disorder was recognized by the World Health Organization, there was an individual uh, in the gaming industry who argued that this was sort of an effort by China to uh, restrict the opportunity for their young people to be exposed to other political ideas. Because when they were playing these games, they were exposed to an opportunity to learn about you know, different types of information. So this was a, an opportunity to censor their users from being able to kind of be exposed to these ideas. And I'm sure some aspect of that is also taking place, obviously. Uh, so I'm not really sure where this goes. I think that in other ways, China has always been a big uh, proponent of esports. Their country has been a leader in esports, which is like organized competitions for gaming. And now a lot of star players who are under the age of 18 are having to retire. Uh, in fact, one a star player in, in Counter-Strike from China just yesterday uh, made a statement that, that it this was the last tournament that he was going to be able to be involved in for the next two years until he turned 18 and then could compete again. And so there are some of these tragic stories as well, but uh, I don't imagine these things will ever come into the West. And so I think that, I'll say this, it was interesting to me how big of a story this became in the West when there were a lot of other issues the same week that were really significant. So a week after the Afghanistan stuff happened, it, this was a big story. And this was on the front page of every national news across the United States, across Europe. And it was as if Afghanistan never even mattered anymore because China decided to ban video games for their young people. You know, and for me personally, I thought that was a bit ridiculous. Um, you know, I, I think we can talk about this stuff, obviously, and, and you know, sure, we can write some articles about it. But is this really national news in Canada? China's banning video games for young people. You know, there are certainly other stories that I think are a bit more important. Yeah, I mean, American kids are running around wearing night vision goggles and Call of Duty. Chinese kids are no longer allowed to run around wearing night vision goggles and Call of Duty, and the Taliban now has 10 to 15,000 pairs of night vision goggles that they're actually going to go around and ter terrorize a shitload of people in Afghanistan with. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a hot button issue. I mean, one of the things I'm very open about is I have over the past two years become convinced that we've been in a, an unrestricted hybrid um, global war for the past 15 years. Um, unrestricted, meaning it's 
everyone's a player, you're a target, I'm a target, my computer's a target, your computer's a target, everything, hospitals, gaming consoles, kids, everyone's a target. Hybrid means it's multiple domains, so it could be economic, it could be financial, it could be cultural, it could be drugs, it could be um, biological, whatever the case might be. Um, cyber, for example. So I'm, I'm pretty open, especially on this podcast and in this context, that I'm convinced that that's what's going on and everything short of kinetic war is on the table right now. And one of the components of that that I've been tracking pretty closely is this sort of reverse opium war that's happening. So what you have happening right now is you see in dramatic increases in the amount of fentanyl coming into the United States. So the percentage of opium coming into the US right now has gone from, from traditional opioids like heroin, and it's now much more skewed to fentanyl, which is 10 times deadlier than heroin. But where does that fentanyl come from? Manufacturing, it's not the easiest thing in the world, and the precursor chemicals are pretty complex. So it turns out that, that there's strong evidence that the Chinese Communist Party partnered with the cartels, sent the Mexican cartels, sent Chinese scientists and sent Chinese precursor chemicals to the cartels in Mexico to make fentanyl and then have the cartels peddle it over the border into the United States. So it's the kind of a reverse opium war, whereas the West was using opium to control China back in, I don't know what year it was. Um, now China is trying to use opium to control the West. And this is freaking interesting, what you're telling me about, about gaming. That Tencent owns Riot Games is, who would have thought? Um, and that at the same time that China is minimizing their kids' access to this kind of digital opium, they're also owning the infrastructure that's getting U.S. kids hooked on this digital opium. And I, I mean, we can call it what we want, but that seems to me the, um, the more nefarious view of what's really going on here. Not that, not that that's definitely happening, but it seems like that's a, that's a, that's a logical thesis about, about how things could be evolving and, um, and some of these things. And as the United States is getting more and more addicted, China's pulling back and they're saying, okay, now kids, we got to go, we got to go get working and, and become more industrious, which is interesting. I mean, I, I certainly think that the actions lean in that direction and whether it's conscious or not, you know, often these things are a hybrid of both, but it's interesting that as, you know, the, as China continues a, a major grip on the gaming industry and, you know, continues to invest heavily in a number of companies, you know, whether it's they own 93% of Riot Games, they own, I believe, 43% of Epic Games, which has Fortnite. And while they're continuing to grow the gaming industry globally, substantially, they're also pulling back their the young the, the opportunity for their young people to be engaging in this activity. And the argument is from a productivity standpoint and very much the uh, the sort of like Cold War 2.0 kind of idea is around it's attacking on every front, right? And so productivity is one of the big ones. And you look at the manufacturing, you look at the jobs, that has been a huge uh, opportunity where China has, has certainly had a huge impact on the West in that way. And I think this is now another example, potentially, of how that same sort of behavior is taking place. China is helping the rest of the world to game and spend as much of their time not being productive as possible while trying to protect heavily with heavy restrictions, like three hours a week is no joke. You know, three hours a day, I would be more of a, you know, that would seem like a reasonable sort of 
potential regulation. I mean, I don't think that, again, the West would ever institute something. Well, you said earlier that the average screen time was six to seven hours a day before COVID for the West. I mean, three hours a week. Of recreational screen time. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? And so if you think someone's at school for six, seven, eight hours a day, and then they're at home, how many hours do they actually have at home before they go to bed? Like, there aren't that many hours. And they're spending six of those on screens. Like, they're basically on screens all day. And now with COVID, that's certainly the case. And so I think that, you know, we definitely want to be be looking at these areas and, and really be looking at, okay, we don't necessarily need to restrict our young people from playing video games only three hours a week, but certainly we could do more to educate families and young people to keep it in balance and to keep it within uh, the realm of complementing your life instead of being your life. And also engaging in developing these skills that are very important for not just your well-being, but your fulfillment, your purpose in life, your ability to contribute to society and really make a difference with the unique skills and talents that you have. And so I think that if we look at behavior, China is certainly taking a lot of action to protect their interests in their population and the West, maybe not so much. And maybe there, there is a balance there that we can find. I, I just, I always drive this home. I mean, the West is all about individualism and rugged individualism, making a strong fabric that then comes together to where we need to um, govern as a, as a culture. So I think in the West, it's got to start with the individuals. And I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to realize that these are some serious issues uh, and that if we don't start owning them as individuals, we are, we are in for a, a really difficult, painful time. Um, again, not on a national level, but just on an individual level. I mean, we got to start learning how to be resilient and how to live our lives again. So that, that's a good segue into the last thing I want to talk about. We're coming up on the end of our time together. Um, so when we, when we spoke last, you, you enlightened me to a very interesting thread about what might be one of the underlying causes for the labor shortage we're seeing in the United States right now. So there's people who say it's because the government's been printing money and helicopter money to people. And they've, you know, late workers have said, hey, I don't need to go to work. Um, I can just stay home and get get my paycheck. Um, there's other folks who say you know, the other side of the political spectrum will say, yeah, you know, workers finally feel empowered and they are striking and they're not going to work because they're not getting fair pay and they're not they're not under the you know the right working under the right conditions. And then there's other people who say, no, it's just COVID. People are afraid to go to work because of COVID. I think that that's total bullshit. Um, but you had an interesting take on this, uh, which was that because people were staying home over COVID and people were working from home, they had all sorts of new interactions with media. And that resulted in some pretty gnarly um, kind of economic consequences for the labor force. Could you tell me a little bit more about that and, and kind of fill in and tell me where, where, I, where I was wrong in my description? Yeah. So I, I think that I'll touch on the COVID piece as well, because uh, I think COVID, the way this interacts with COVID is very much at least a certain demographic of this group who are no longer going back to work, they've, their routine through COVID has been, you know, being on technology and being at home and not going outside and not going and engaging in the world. And I think they've got comfortable with that routine, whether they're being paid to do that or not. For many individuals during COVID, they've moved back home. They've been spending time with family. And so they may not even have the, uh, need to actually go and get a job 
anymore because they're being taken care of. But over the last 15 years, as video game usage has increased, there's been some data that has looked at unemployment rates for young men in their early 20s, between 21 and 30 years old. Their unemployment rates uh, have been dropping sharper than any other group. And this hasn't just been happening in the United States, but uh, data from, let me get this right. So data from OECD, which is a, is a group that has, I believe there's 28 or 30 countries uh, that pool their data to, to share it through this group. So the unemployment rates for young men in their early 20s, as those have been dropping, those have also been seen similar patterns, almost exact same patterns have been seen with OECD as well. And so as these young men have been not really working, not really going to school, 75% of the time that they used to spend working has now been spent gaming. And one of the really interesting uh, data points that these researchers found, Eric Hurst out of the University of Chicago, found was that from a well-being perspective, these young men, they're not unhappy with their life. In fact, they're content, which to me, it makes sense. Because Can you, can you define that? Can we define terms? Can you define happiness versus content versus unhappiness? Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm not sure exactly how they defined it in 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 the paper, but uh, I believe content in in their context meant like they weren't depressed, they weren't unhappy, they weren't uh, like they they were just they were comfortable, they were comfortable not working, right? And to me, it makes sense because. You know, if you're playing video games all day, you're having fun, you're getting rewarded for all of your effort, you're seeing your progress in so many ways, although it's artificial. But that happiness or that contentment actually changed when they reached 30, because then they started to see how far behind in life they were. And as their friends, maybe from high school or university, were getting married, having kids, moving forward in their careers, they were very much at the beginning. And that then led to depression and then led to a lot of these mental health issues. And I, I really think that this has always been an interesting angle because if we look at these young men, their desire to work is just no longer there. And they're actually very comfortable kind of just staying at home, living at their parents' house often, and just kind of playing video games and kind of escaping into the virtual world. And gaming can be a risk in this way, partially because in games, you get rewarded for all of your effort. So if I'm playing a video game, I get constant feedback. I have like scores flashing across the screen. I have leaderboards. Many games now have... Uh, rankings that you're trying to achieve, you're comparing yourself socially across, you know, not just your peers, but also the global perspective. And so you're constantly seeing this feedback loop. Whereas in the real world, you don't really get rewarded for all of your efforts. And certainly you get much more delayed gratification, right? So for instance, you could study hard to do better in school, to, to do well on a test and not even know if you've 
actually seeing improvements to your grades for weeks, if not months. Whereas in a video game, almost at all times you're playing, you're getting that source of feedback about how well you're doing and about what you're achieving. And so it can actually, uh, often what we see in game quitters are members who, uh, for them, their perception of effort and reward has been completely warped where they want that instant gratification. They want to be constantly rewarded for everything that they're doing because games provide that to them. In the real world, because it doesn't give them those same that same feedback loop, that same sense of reward, they find it boring, not engaging, and just not fulfilling. And it takes quite a period of time for them to actually, once they've removed games from their life, to actually begin to re-engage with the world and feel that ability to uh, engage with delayed gratification in the same way. And so this is one way where with games, the way they're designed and what someone may be gaining from playing them can actually kind of warp their perception of the way the world works. And that can have knock-on effects of going and getting a job. Well, if you apply for you know, 100 jobs, you might not even get one, right? You put in all this effort and you don't even get a job, which is all that you want. You might, you might not even get a rejection letter. You just simply never hear back. Whereas if you play 100 games or 100 uh, matches within a game, you'll constantly get rewarded for that. And that's a big difference here. So I, I think that it's often going to be difficult to uh, quantify and measure you know, how much of an impact is gaming having on the current labor shortages. But for me, looking at, you know, I've been talking about this specific issue for the last five years. As soon as I started to see these labor shortages start popping up and that a lot of specifically young men aren't really going and getting jobs now after COVID, I'm looking at this being like, well, during COVID, their gaming time increased significantly. And I bet as we start to investigate this further, more of this demographic who is vulnerable to kind of removing themselves from the workforce in this way and just spending their time gaming much more of that is taking place. It, COVID accelerated that uh, in, in many ways. Is it just young men or are there, is there a corollary for young women to, you know, be it Instagram or Netflix or even gaming? What is the, yeah. what's the state? The research the from Eric Hurst, the research from Eric Hurst did uh, reference that young women were being impacted by this uh, as well, but not as substantially. And I think young men, are certainly most vulnerable uh, often because the games that they're playing are more achievement-based games. And they begin to really identify with the gaming or the virtual world as the source of achievement and confidence and self-esteem and purpose and the real world as essentially the opposite of that, right? The, The real world doesn't provide them with that same sense of accomplishment. And so they tend to spend more time in the virtual world. Uh, And so I think that's uh, much more likely to affect young men and specifically men in their early 20s. Crazy. This is a intense, um, I know that we had some fun here, but it's also a a really serious conversation. And um, I think that this is going to be one of the issues that we look back 
in 30 years from now and we view this as a as an existential crisis that faced our country and and every individual to wrap up a final question for you and then i'll ask you to maybe share how people can get in touch with you where they can learn more are we going to look back in 30 years from now and look at gaming like we look at cigarette consumption and kids smoking cigarettes and and whatnot you know pre-1940 yeah i've i've looked at this uh this quite a bit actually there's a really good study by uh, the World Health Organization called The Evolution of the Tobacco Industry's Response to Nicotine Addiction. And I can send it to you. It's fascinating. You can find it for free on, on Google. One of the interesting things about this investigation was that the tobacco industry, while they were being investigated about you know going into hearings and stuff about nicotine being addictive and and they're at these hearings saying nicotine is not addictive to cigarettes are not addictive and they're really kind of fighting back against any potential regulation at the same time they were doing that their r&d departments were investigating how to maximize the amount of nicotine in a cigarette and when i read this report it's about 50 pages If you take nicotine and you swap it with gaming, and then you look at what the gaming industry has been saying publicly about gaming disorder, what they've been saying in hearings where governments such as in the UK have been investigating, are games addictive? Do they need to be regulated? The playbook is almost identical. And at this moment, you know, in one of those hearings, I put out a Twitter thread at one point saying, here are 10 questions I would ask in this hearing. And one of them was about, does the gaming industry hire behavioral psychologists to design their games? And this uh, individual in the hearing asked this question and and the representative of the gaming industry, one of the big companies said, no, we do not hire psychologists to help design our games. And that same company on a job board posted a request saying, we're looking for behavioral psychologists because we see all game designers as behavioral psychologists in a sense. And the gaming industry, while they're saying that games are not addictive, you can't get addicted to games, you just have other problems going on and games are just fun. At the same time they're doing that, they're also trying to maximize the amount of time someone plays a video game and maximize the amount of money they're spending in a game in many different ways and many predatory monetization schemes. And so I think that we will look back certainly and say, we should have done more sooner. I don't know if it will go to the same level of of cigarettes, but I certainly think that uh, the statements by the gaming industry thus far have, have fallen way short. And the tragedy is that everyone knows someone who's affected by this issue. It's not like this is a giant secret, right? It's a brother, it's, it's a cousin, it's a parent, it's a loved one. Everyone is affected in some way, whether directly or indirectly through a family member. And I think that that is all the evidence I need that we should do more to help them. And so that's really what we're trying to do with Game Quitters. And I appreciate you having me to be able to speak to this a bit and raise some more awareness. And if anyone out there listening has any questions or, or would like to discuss it further, I'd be happy to. There's so much more that we could discuss around this topic, but 
I definitely think that, uh, you know, it, it's well past time for us to, to be looking at our tech use and looking at our, our gaming use and better protecting our citizens, uh, not just from a productivity standpoint, but from a well-being standpoint as well. Well, Cam, thank you so much. I hope that you all now understand a little bit better about where gaming addiction comes from, what it is, and what we might be able to do about it and what to look look for over the next few decades as this really intense existential crisis that's facing um, our country and our world and every individual uh, is solved or is not solved. So, Cam, thank you for your work. You mentioned Game Quitters. Uh, do you have any calls to action? Where can people find you on social media? What's the website? And we will link all that in the show notes as well. Gamequitters.com is the best place. We have a lot of resources and programs on there. On Twitter, it's at Gamequitters. On Instagram, it's at Cameron Dare. Uh, you can send me an email, cam at Gamequitters.com. And then our professional training is at intenta.digital uh, for clinicians and, and people who work with young people. Uh, I can't uh, ask enough that, that people working with young people get trained on gaming and technology issues because often they're not coming forward saying, oh, hey, by the way, I have a gaming addiction. They're maybe depressed and refusing to go to school and refusing to get a job. And if you're not able to kind of investigate further and say, oh, what are you spending your time on? Why do you not want to stop playing video games so much? Uh, you're kind of missing a big piece of the puzzle. So anyone out there who's working with young people, uh, intenta.digital, uh, it'll help a lot. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Max. Thank you so much for listening to the Next Frontier podcast. If you'd like to dive deeper into our content, share our content, or subscribe to our newsletter to get our updates delivered directly to your inbox, go head on over to nextfrontierpodcast.com to subscribe.